Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas with the Education Debates. There used to be a strong agreement about the proper course of study in the humanities, but over the last few decades this agreement has tended to break down. The curriculum has been attacked as too white, too western, too male, and reforms have been undertaken in many universities to address these complaints. Some people have seen the resulting changes as a descent into shallow relativism, a falling away from tradition, passion and purpose in undergraduate education, a closing of the mind, as the late Alan Bloom put it. Others have perceived an opening into a new, less authoritarian kind of education, in which conflict over the curriculum enlivens the curriculum, and students are free to pass beyond old limitations of nation, tradition and gender to become true citizens of the world. Our speakers tonight represent this second, more cheerful perspective. First you will hear philosopher and classicist Martha Nussbaum. She's the author of Cultivating Humanity, a new book which argues that the opening of the curriculum advances the ideal of a liberal education rather than foreclosing it, as conservative critics have said. In the second half of the programme, Gerald Graff, the author of Beyond the Culture Wars, proposes what he calls teaching the conflicts, presenting books as sites of contestation rather than as forbidding monuments of culture, he says, can be a way of engaging students with texts from which they might otherwise remain alienated. Gerald Graff and Martha Nussbaum in part 15 of the Education Debates by David Cayley. In early 1988, an article appeared in the Chronicle of Higher Education called It is Not Elitist to Place Major Literature at the Center of the English Curriculum. In this article, the head of the English department at the Pennsylvania State University, Christopher Clausen, wrote that he would be willing to bet that Alice Walker's novel, The Color Purple, is taught in more English courses today than all of Shakespeare's plays combined. His article was widely disseminated, and other writers of like mind soon transformed Clausen's admitted guess into a firm claim, further proof that the classics were on the ropes. I can myself remember having a vague impression around this time that the color purple was taking over the English curriculum, though I couldn't have told you the source until I read Gerald Graff's Beyond the Culture Wars. Graff, himself an English professor, took the trouble to check Clausen's wager against the actual situation at Northwestern University, where Graff then taught. He examined the course offerings between 1986 and 1990 and found that Walker's novel had been taught in only two courses, as opposed to eight that required at least six plays by Shakespeare, and eight more that required at least two. When he calculated the number of students who read Shakespeare against the number who read Walker, he came up with the score of Shakespeare 83, Walker 1. Professor Clausen's guess, which seemed so plausible, but proved so groundless, is typical of the somewhat panicky tenor of much of the writing on universities that appeared in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Lately, however, I have the impression that something of a counterattack has been launched against this apocalyptic genre. Graf's Beyond the Culture Wars, which is discussed in the second half of tonight's show, 
was one of its opening salvos. Then, in 1995, historian Lawrence Levine turned Alan Bloom's famous closing of the American mind on its head with the opening of the American mind. Martha Nussbaum's Cultivating Humanity, published in 1997, continues this strain, arguing that American higher education is, on the whole, in a healthy state. Nussbaum is professor of law and ethics at the University of Chicago. She calls cultivating humanity a classical defense of reform and liberal education because it argues that the teachings of many classical philosophers, from Socrates to Seneca, support an open, wide-ranging curriculum and not a restrictive traditionalism based on a canon of great books. The argument began to take shape, she says, when she reviewed Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind for the New York Review of Books in 1987. In that review, I focused on Bloom's treatment of the Greeks because I felt that, you know, he started out saying he was a big fan of Socrates, but he ended up saying we should go back to a curriculum based on the great books. And I thought there was a real tension in that argument because if you think about what the Greek philosophers themselves have to say about what an education should be, they're extremely skeptical and suspicious of an education that's based on assimilation and internalizing the great ideas of the culture. Uh, they think think that that deadens the mind and they want a mind that's questioning, that, that wants to take charge of its own thinking rather than just passively receiving what tradition gives it. So I said that in that review very briefly, but then um, some publishers approached me and said, are you interested in doing a book on this topic? And as the time went on and I, I saw that uh, Bloom was taken to be the defender of the classics against the assaults of modernity, I, I really felt there was a need for a book that put things in a more complicated light and tried to bring out some of the great ideas the Greek philosophers themselves had about liberal education because I think those ideas help us think about what we're doing today. Nussbaum argues in Cultivating Humanity that during the last generation, American higher education has become more democratic, more critical of tradition, and more cosmopolitan. She thinks that these changes have moved American universities closer to classical ideals, rather than further away from them, as Alan Bloom believed. Both writers cite Socrates, but Nussbaum interprets him very differently than Bloom. See, I think what Bloom does, uh, and, and it's something that obviously there's a lot of controversy about, is to run Socrates and Plato together. Now, obviously, Plato was, was very moved by the career of his teacher, Socrates. But I think it's equally obvious that at a certain point, he, he broke away from Socrates. So Socrates' idea was always that you did philosophy by questioning each and every person you meet, getting each and every person to think and uh, to, to reflect for himself, and even, I would say herself as well, because Socrates says if in the underworld he expects to question the noble women who are there. He, he couldn't see them in Athens because they were all indoors, but he would see them in the afterlife, he thought. And uh, it was a very democratic conception of education because he, he said he thought democracy was the best form of government he knew, and uh, he viewed himself as a gadfly on the back of a noble but sluggish horse, that is democracy, trying to just wake it up, sting it so that it 
was going to do its business in a more reflective way. Now, by the time we get to Plato's Republic, obviously Plato has grown to hate democracy, to think it's one of the worst forms of government. And at the same time, he, he really does scorn the open practice of philosophical dialectic that Socrates had stood for. He replaces it with a much more esoteric, uh, secret method based on years of specialized training in mathematics and science, something that in the end is going to reserve philosophy for a few elite leaders. And the vast uh, masses of the people in his ideal city don't examine their lives at all. So I think there's a tremendous difference between Plato and Socrates by the time you get to the mature writings of Plato, like the Republic, and uh, that Bloom kind of slides over that difference. And uh, it's really through this undemocratic conception of the intellectual life that he defends the curriculum based on the great books. So in my review, I already took that apart and, and criticized it, but, but my own um, book really takes its stand very squarely with Socrates against the Plato of the Republic and says that, yes, uh, our democracy is sluggish. Yes, it does need to be waked up by philosophical questioning. I mean, I say all undergraduates should have two semesters of philosophy in their undergraduate education. But um, we do this because it's good for democracy. It produces a more deliberative democracy, and uh, not because we think that, that some people are better than others. And I went out of my way in the book to, to make that clear in my choice of students. I spend a lot of time on a student named Billy Tucker, whom I met in my health club. He was working behind the desk, and he, uh, he was studying at a business college that happened to have required philosophy courses. And I, I use Tucker as an example of how these courses make you a better democratic citizen. He'd been listening to talk radio a lot. You know, he thought that political argument was just a matter of slogans and abuse. And he learned in those courses what it was to argue in favor of a position that you don't hold yourself. He was absolutely stunned when he was asked to produce arguments against the death penalty, which he favors. And he said from that, he learned what it was to actually respect the position of somebody you disagree with, to, to listen to that argument and try to see what the common ground might be and what the differences might be. So that example was an attempt to show that I think philosophy is of essential importance for every citizen in a democracy. And somebody like Billy Tucker is just as important to me as someone at an elite uh, university, and, and maybe in a way more so because he's more representative of, of the average uh, American citizen. Nussbaum sees philosophy as a popular, democratic practice, open to everyone, essential to the well-being of everyone, and capable of making a real difference in the world. In the ancient world, this view passed from Socrates to the Stoic philosophers who began to appear in Athens in the century after Socrates' death. The Stoic school eventually gained considerable worldly influence, particularly at Rome. The Roman statesman Cicero adopted Stoic ideas. Seneca, another Stoic, became regent of the empire when Nero was still too young to rule, and the Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius was later emperor. This convergence of theory and practice, Nussbaum says, reflected the Stoic outlook.
The Stoic idea really was that theory should be done only for the sake of practice. And uh, the practical point that was especially important to them was that our actions should, should have their origin in reason rather than in mere habit and tradition. Each person should take charge of his or her own thinking. And I, I do mean her because they were big defenders of women's equality and the equal education of women. And uh, they also thought that each human being has infinite worth and dignity because of their rationality. And so every human being, whether upper class, lower class, rich or poor, deserves boundless respect and reverence precisely because there is in them reason, which by which they mean moral reason, the power of making moral choices. And therefore, all these distinctions of class, rank, sex, birth, all of these are irrelevant, and we, we have a fundamental equality with one another based upon our moral capacities. The Stoic philosophers, particularly the Roman Stoics, left behind them a large body of writings, many of them concerned with education. In Cultivating Humanity, Nussbaum draws particular attention to a letter of Seneca's, written to his friend and regular correspondent Lucilius. Lucilius has asked his friend's opinion of the traditional Roman studia liberales, or liberal studies. Seneca begins by saying that this word uh, liberalis uh, generally, of course etymologically it's connected to the word for free, but then he asks the question, how is this usually understood? Well, usually it's understood, he says, to mean that a liberal education is an education for the free born, that is the one who's already a gentleman. So it's a, an education for an elite and what it consists in typically, he says, is uh, the rather mindless internalization of great books. People just uh, absorb their culture's great precepts and not learning to criticize or think very much about them. Now then, he says, he himself is going to use the word liberalis in a very different way. And education for him is truly liberal, that is connected to freedom, only if it's one that makes you free, meaning makes you in charge of your own reasoning, able to run your life by your own thought rather than the thought of habit, of tradition, or of your parents, or whatever. So that's the, the basic idea, is that in the end of the day, we want a truly free person, meaning one who's thought about it all, who has reasons for what he or she does, and, and who's able to exchange arguments and reasons with others in the political sphere because what, what we're after is not just individuals living well, but it's a community that's governed by, by argument rather than by the, the whims and passions of the moment. So what will that consist in? Well, he says, of course, it doesn't displace the reading of great books. He, he thinks those are essential nourishment for the mind. But it, first of all, that reading itself will be done now in a very different way. It'll be done not in the, the old mode that says this is the wisdom of our fathers, but instead uh, these are some good thinkers who've proposed some good ideas. Uh, we can test our wits uh, by thinking about them, but in the end it, we're the ones who've got to make up our minds. And so we're going to read it respectfully, but also 
critically, thinking, well, what are the shortcomings of, of that great work? Uh, and, and at every point, we're testing our own wits, uh, trying to make the arguments our own, so that we are never just parroting and mouthing something. And so that's the kind of citizen that I am after in this book. Uh, and I tried to emphasize that I think it's something that we can all sign on to as, uh, as a conception of the citizen that will make us a much more deliberative democracy, uh, that even people who are deeply religious uh, should be able to agree that reasoning in that way, in that Socratic uh, Stoic style, will make for a better political community. So that's uh, what I propose, and, and that's why I think philosophy plays a very important part in the curriculum that, that I would want to see universities designing. Nussbaum argues that a Stoic view of reason particularly suits democracy, and therefore the universities of a democracy. In Cultivating Humanity, she puts this view forward in defense of the reforms that have taken place in the United States since she began teaching in the 1970s. Her book, in addition to its theoretical dimension, recounts the results of an extensive four-year research project which involved Nussbaum and several graduate assistants in looking at 15 representative American universities. They ranged all the way from Brigham Young, a conservative Mormon institution, to a Boston-area business college. Nussbaum's findings are encouraging. She reports that programs of liberal study are thriving in a variety of non-elite settings, and she argues that a broader, more universal curriculum is widening the horizons of many young Americans and making them as the Stoics said, citizens of the world. Nussbaum also suggests in her book that the Stoic philosophy effectively addresses contemporary threats to the university's continued existence as a community based on reason. Some of these threats have come from those who argue either that reason is essentially male, or that it's a purely Western construct, or that it's a disguised form of domination. Michel Foucault, for example, sees truth not as a product of reasoning, but as an effect of power. Nussbaum sees this critique of reason as salutary, but argues that it applies only to the abuses of reason, and not to the Stoic view of reason as an embodied personal practice and a universal calling. A lot of what posed as reason was really informed by class prejudice or sex prejudice or all, all kinds of prejudice. And, of course, that was true in science when research was done on gender difference. It was often extremely bad research by traditional standards of scientific rationality, but it wore the mantle of reason, and it had uh, great prestige for that, uh, for that reason. And so, too, in anthropology, uh, a lot of what passed as rational observation of, of other cultures was really uh, deep deeply informed by bias and, and by one's own sense of privilege and a lot of statements that were made about other cultures. Uh, probably anthropology was, was by no means the, the worst on this and philosophy was probably uh, worse because of its uh, cultural narrowness, but a lot of statements that were made about um, other cultures were uh, extremely ill-informed. But I think it's quite another thing to say that the norms of reason themselves are defective. And I think that today you often find a slide from one to the other. Just because we can show that a lot of people who wore the mantle of reason were really prejudiced, ignorant, and, and uh, in general do not doing very good work, <laughs> therefore people think that, that it's been shown 
shown that those norms themselves are ignoble and that uh, we have to turn to something else. Now, I think then the, the, the problem comes for these people. Uh, what, what is the other thing that we turn to? Because most of the people who assail reason are themselves um, convinced of certain very fundamental moral things, that is, that uh, people should have equal rights, that deprived and oppressed people should be treated better than they've been treated before. And so the question is, where in their view is there room for an account of what's oppressive and why, what's wrong with oppression, what should be resisted and why. And, you know, I think Foucault was in many ways a great thinker for what he uh, says about the origins of oppression and the way in which claims to rationality could function as devices of oppression. But what I find uh, disturbing in Foucault in the end is that there's no, there's this general injunction to resist, but there's no story about what should be resisted and why, unless we have some idea of human dignity, the badness of certain kinds of treatment of a human being as a means rather than an end, uh, all, all of the things that the Stoics uh, had, I think we really in the end can't um, tell people why they should resist and what they should resist. Although I don't mean to say that I don't think Foucault offers valuable insights, but I think that the lack of a rational norm and a rational justification of that norm uh, really is a, a, a tremendous problem for anyone who wants to use it for progressive ends. Martha Nussbaum criticizes the cultural left for a view of reason that she thinks is incoherent and self-defeating. She's equally hard on the academic right, whom she sees as engaged in uncritical tradition-mongering. Her approach is to seek the middle way. She deplores chauvinism about Western culture, but she also deplores the relativism that is frequently seen as its only alternative. This feeling for the golden mean is evident in her approach to the various programs of special studies, like women's studies or African-American studies, that have been established since the 1960s. Many critics see these programs as an instance of what Alan Bloom calls the university's decomposition and an abdication of its duty to integrate rather than to segregate. Nussbaum acknowledges the risk of resegregation. In fact, she tells in her book the story of a promising African-American student of hers who was pressured into quitting philosophy by the brothers of his all-black fraternity. They convinced him that such an interest lay outside his racial identity. But even so, she argues that programs of special studies are a desirable way of focusing scholarship on new and neglected knowledge. I think these special programs have a great intellectual value in the following sense, that they bring people together from many uh, established disciplines to think about a common set of problems, uh, just the way that a classics department is an interdisciplinary network of people, some of whom are archaeologists, some of whom are philosophers, some of whom are literary scholars, and they get a lot of mileage out of being in the same place together and talking together because the whole study of the ancient world then becomes multifaceted and very rich. I, I think in the same way, a Department of African American Studies or a Department of uh, women's studies, of course, is, is, is so much broader that it poses somewhat different problems. But I think similarly, people who come together from different departments into an interdisciplinary program like this can profit by it greatly as scholars and can create very exciting kinds of courses. What I think is very uh, pernicious is if that's uh, taken 
to be assigned to the students that this study is only for people who have a certain kind of identity, so that if women's studies uh, give the signal that only women should come and study here, that this is all about women affirming a special gender identity, or if an African-American studies department gives the signal that this is a, a way in which African-American students can affirm their separate identity. Uh, that's pernicious for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, of course, um, because it tells the other students that they needn't come and learn. And uh, I mean, that, that to me is the worst thing about that, because these are areas of study that are tremendously important for all students and, uh, and not just for people who already have a certain identity. And then I think second, because they, it sometimes gives the students in the group the idea that somehow it's in their blood or they know it already and it's not a form of study and I, I think that's not true I mean there's no absolutely no no reason why um, being a born a female gives you access to knowledge about how women have lived in in history so so you need it to be a genuine form of rigorous academic study and sometimes such programs uh, lose rigor and become a mere you know kind of confessional uh, expression of your uh, of your gender identity but I, I think those defects, so they're certainly there in some places. I, I think there are a lot more universities that I saw where those uh, defects are avoided and where those programs uh, supply essential richness to the curriculum, uh, offering students something that all of them need to have if they're going to be well-rounded and good citizens, and that is a much better understanding than most of our citizens have of the history and legacy of, of slavery and racism in this country, for example. Uh, much more knowledge than most people had in previous eras of the obstacles to women's equality in history of the contributions that women have made in spite of these obstacles and and so on. And uh, so I think the main thing is to say that th this is a domain of learning and scholarship uh, which is important for all, all students. North American university education has changed radically during the last 40 years. A lot of the commentary inspired by this change has suggested that it has been much for the worse. Martha Nussbaum sees these complaints about the decadence of the university as mainly a lament for the passing of a gentleman's education. The contemporary university, in her view, is engaged in what she calls an unparalleled experiment in democratic education. And even allowing for her admittedly cheerful disposition, she says that this experiment so far has been a remarkable success. I guess it's... It's part of my character that I, I am uh, an optimist, but I also, I, I believe Kant is right that you ought to adopt some optimistic practical postulates in order to keep things going in a good direction, that, that even where you're in doubt about whether things are going in a good direction, it's better to be optimistic than pessimistic because this will motivate you and others to, to be constructive rather than uh, cynical or burned out. But I actually do think that we've come a tremendous way. I mean, look, we're the most democratic system of higher education in North America that, that ever has been just in terms 
terms of, of the range of students and their backgrounds that we try to educate. And for a while, it was a very bizarre thing. We thought that we'd take this very wide range of students and then we'd teach them the gentleman's education. Now, wasn't that strange? Rather than to think, well, we're educating for a democracy, and so we better think what a democratic citizen should know. And uh, so I think we've come a long way in thinking well about that question. Instead of just trying to feed the old elite education to a wider range of people, we're thinking what a truly democratic education should be, and, and, and we're thinking that in this current world, that must involve thinking more about women, about race, about uh, non-Western cultures. So we haven't got it perfect. And of course, a lot of these programs are just strapped for lack of money and, and lack of support in an era where there's increasing pressure to be pre-professional and pre-vocational. So I'm worried, very worried about that kind of pressure. And I, I want to be optimistic uh, about the humanities, partly in order to keep people aware of their tremendous importance for our survival as a democracy. I think it would be a terrible thing if we cut back humanities budgets thinking that the only uh, sound kind of education is a pre-vocational education. Uh, but I, I do think we have reason for, for optimism uh, when we look uh, to see where we've come from and how how much more fully we've been able to include all our citizens, both both as students but also then as objects of, of study. And, and I think the two do go hand in hand because if you see that your own life isn't included in what gets studied, that does send a message that the culture doesn't care that anyone should understand you and what does that mean? It means you're a second-class uh, citizen. Martha Nussbaum's book, Cultivating Humanity, originated in the battle about who should go to university and what they should be taught that flared up in the 1980s. The same period and the same struggle also gave birth to the second book I want to discuss tonight, Gerald Graff's Beyond the Culture Wars. Graff saw the conflict and the crisis it produced as an opportunity for American higher education. To him, the really worrying problem was not the somewhat overblown threat to the classics. It was the alienation and ambivalence of many students. And he saw, in the struggle over the power to define what counts as culture, a chance to make education more vital and more engaging for them. Why not, he proposed, teach the conflicts and let the arguments enliven the curriculum? Gerald Graff has been teaching English literature in American universities since 1963 and is currently the George M. Pullman Professor of the Humanities at the University of Chicago. He says that one of the incidents that prompted him to write Beyond the Culture Wars was an invitation to appear on The Oprah Winfrey Show. Alan Bloom had just published his best-selling The Closing of the American Mind, and Graff was asked to come on the show as someone who disagreed with Bloom. They needed somebody to debate Bloom, and I went on, and, and um, a funny thing uh, happened uh, to my thinking as soon as I uh, was invited on, and I, uh, before going on the show, I started to imagine what it would be like, and I, I suddenly realized that um, 
I started to think of uh, Bloom differently. Uh, he was still my antagonist in a way, my ideological rival. He was somebody that I would be—I was there to disagree with. But once I imagined myself being on the show, I started thinking of him as a um, as a collaborator in a way. Since after all, he and I would have to find some way to produce a coherent discussion of complicated intellectual issues on daytime TV and we would you know we were at least collaborators in the sense that we were in this thing together as far as not boring uh, poor Oprah's audience to death you know and and I realized that in many ways um, that the very conflict between Bloom and me brought us a lot closer together than either of us would be to probably a lot of people in the audience that in order to engage in conflict with somebody, you have to be in the same ballpark talking the, the same kind of talk. That's why I think there's a, a, a kind of irony that the left and the right, the academic and the left and the right, the, their very antagonism towards each other, feminists say on the one hand and uh, traditionalist uh, scholars on the other, they couldn't have that conflict unless they, they were in some ways closer to each other than they are to many of the students who don't identify with either group. And in fact, um, many of our students, you know, would, would see Bloom and somebody like me as really very much the same kind of person, very different from themselves, both of us being professors, intellectuals, eggheads, and so forth, who talk about high-minded subjects like relativism and so forth, not the kinds of subjects that... Uh, they and their parents and friends talk about. Graf's recognition that he had more in common with Alan Bloom than with Oprah's audience led him to ask whether the same might not be true of the audience for university education, the students. Yes, he and his colleagues were engaged in bitter controversy about the curriculum, but by far the more significant gulf he came to feel was the one separating the bulk of the students from the whole academic enterprise. It won't do us much good to uh, replace Shakespeare with Toni Morrison or to bring in Toni Morrison alongside Shakespeare, which I think what's happening most often. It's not going to do us a lot of good to, to win the battle of the canon, to bring in um, texts by women and minorities. If a lot of the students still need the Cliffs Notes in order to read uh, a novel by Toni Morrison the way they perennially needed the Cliffs Notes in order to make sense of a, of a play by Shakespeare, or at least to write, write a paper about it. <clears throat> and I think, um, to some extent, the, the whole um, controversy over the canon has been somewhat misplaced insofar as it assumes that the quality of education depends entirely on, on which texts will be taught or which materials will be taught. I think it only, only in part is that the case. If students can't talk the talk of... Um, academic culture or of intellectual culture, it's not just academic, if students can't make arguments effectively or can't write a consecutive argument or can't manipulate the vocabulary of um, intellectual analysis, they're not going to do very well uh, whether the, the subject matter is uh, Toni Morrison or Alice Walker or Shakespeare. Graf has noted this estrangement between students and intellectual culture at the elite universities as well as at less prestigious institutions. He believes it reflects something more than just inadequate preparation. The step into bookish culture is a momentous one, Graf says, and many students hesitate to take it. I think that ambivalence toward intellectuality, I wouldn't call it anti-intellectualism, I would call it 
ambivalence toward, you know, like, you know, do I really want to talk this kind of talk? Do I really want to um, commit my life to um, being analytic and talking about the hidden meanings of everything and analyzing everything? I think almost all uh, American students are to some extent ambivalent about that proposition, as, as why shouldn't they be? I mean, most of the culture is, and so, so I think sometimes uh, we ignore the amount of ambivalence or even anti-intellectualism that persists in the student bodies of universities like Chicago or Princeton or Harvard, places that are reputed to be centers for eggheadism. Introducing students to the controversies inspired by classic texts and Graf's experience is a good way to get them over their fear of eggheadism. And many enduring books, he thinks, invite this approach. Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn is a much debated and occasionally banned current example. The question is whether the book endorses racism, as it seems to some readers, or exposes and denounces it, as it seems to others. Graf has presented both perspectives in a new edition of the book he and James Phelan have just published. This so-called Critical Controversies edition, the first of a series, surrounds the novel with 17 interpretive essays and biographical information about Mark Twain, framing the text within the issues it raises. He takes a similar approach in a unit he teaches at the University of Chicago on Joseph Conrad's controversial 1899 novella, The Heart of Darkness, a book pervaded by the European image of Africa as the Dark Continent. Graf teaches it alongside Nigerian writer Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart, a novel that documents the impact of the West on Africa from the African point of view. He says that this approach helps students to focus and motivate their reading. When I do this well, I get the feeling that I'm helping the students tell me that that this kind of unit helps them to read the two novels more effectively. That is, they, they know what they're looking for. They're looking for a particular issue when they read the book, whereas without such a focalizing issue, they're not exactly sure how to read the book. You know, we, we tend to think of, of um, reading books as a rather unproblematic activity. At first sight, it seems rather simple. Either you can read the book or you can't. But I think that... Um, uh, increasingly, educators are finding that uh, to read effectively, you need a kind of context. You need a cultural context. And um, the culture wars, I think, provide one useful kind of cultural context. There are others uh, as well. But I, I, I think that um, debate has a lot of potential as a, um, a way of framing uh, the reading of books so that students can do better understanding books and talking about books. Gerald Graff's view of reading as an activity shaped by context is distinctly different from the view Alan Bloom takes in The Closing of the American Mind. There, Bloom commends what he calls the great books approach. This approach consists, in his words, of reading certain generally recognized classic texts, just reading them, letting them dictate what the questions are and the method of approaching them, not forcing them into categories we make up, not treating them as historical products, but trying to read them as their authors wish them to be read. End quote. Graf thinks that this is a pipe dream for most undergraduates, because without what Bloom calls categories we make up, the students simply don't know where they are with the books at all. To Graf, 
the very act of reading demanding old books implies some prior sense of why and in what way they are supposed to matter. Books read in universities are also read within an interpretive community, a community constituted by the manner in which it analyzes and argues about intellectual questions. This community and its etiquette constitute what Graf calls argument culture. For me, education is ultimately um, best thought of as entry into argument culture, the culture of argument. Even in the sciences, I think um, that's what it involves. To become a, a good scientist, you need to prove your hypothesis to uh, other workers in that field. I think all the academic fields uh, are involved in uh, argument talk, even, even in mathematics, where the uh, language used is a mathematical language. You ultimately have to translate your discourse into arguments. You know, it's, uh, the, the phrase argument culture is interesting, of course, because now uh, Deborah Tannen has published a book called Argument Culture, which deplores the fact that we have become so, um, so much a culture of argument and that we're always fighting with each other and so forth. And I, and I can appreciate um, some of Deborah Tannen's concerns in that often uh, the quality of, pub of public argument that we have in our, in our present culture is pretty low. And... Sometimes, you know, instead of real argument, you have name-calling and mudslinging and something like the verbal equivalent of, of mud-wrestling on uh, talk shows and so forth. But to me, that would be a, an argument for improving the quality of our argument culture rather than trying to think that we should be something else. Argument, in Graf's opinion, is inescapable. Even when linguist Deborah Tannen deplores the disputatiousness of contemporary culture, she is still necessarily making an argument against argument. There are, of course, different kinds of argument, and some critics of Graf's book have suggested that productive argument will only be possible when some of the bitterness and rancor that Deborah Tannen is talking about have been drawn out of the culture. In this view, one has first to make peace and only then to argue. Graf regards the idea as unrealistic. My... Um argument is that um, instead of uh, thinking that we have to wait for this um, utopian moment when we feel comfortable enough to have an argument, let's start the argument first and hope that um, the process of arguing and discussing and thrashing out our differences will produce that feeling of comfort with each other that we're looking for. In other words, I think that this safe zone or comfortable zone in which a culture can argue out its differences has to be a result of conflict, not a precondition. I think if we say that, um, well, we can't talk to each other and, until we feel comfortable with each other, you know, when is that ever going to happen? Better to uh, begin the discussion, have it out, keep talking, and uh, out of the faith that eventually we will um, treat each other more civilized. And I think something like that already uh, actually does happen. I mean, a model would be domestic disputes where, um, and, you know, this is sort of basic tactic of conflict resolution where you get people arguing with each other. And maybe in the first stages they'll be screaming and not, you know, at each other and not, not behaving very respectfully. But often um, what happens is that the second time, you know, they come back and apologize and somebody says, well, you know, I've been thinking and what you said last time um, now makes more sense to me than when you said it, and I'm sorry I got angry. You know, people need, 
need to go through a process in order to feel more comfortable thrashing out their differences. I, I think this is especially a problem in academic culture where where frequently uh, ac academics just don't see each other very often or, uh, you know, we're locked into our little classrooms and are not engaged in a regular process of um, working out our differences so that when debates do break out, they're peculiarly frightening and scary and everybody goes off angry and then that leads to the uh, conclusion that, well, you see, we can't argue with each other. We tried that and it just didn't work, you know, and I think that... Uh, Conditions in which students are not exposed to the basic arguments that are going on around them is anti-educational, and uh, I, you know, I want to create conditions under which students can learn. And I think the only un conditions under which you can really expect to learn something is are ones where the issues are being debated. One reason why the issues usually aren't being debated, Graf suggests, is the atomized structure of the modern university. The institution has grown by endlessly adding new subjects, new departments, and new programs. And the result, he says, is a kind of crazy quilt in which there is not much relationship between the pieces. The assumption, I think, was at the founding of the modern university around the, the turn of the century was that if you get a lot of specialists in different disciplines working on their own thing, that the ultimate net effect, it would all add up in some way to a coherent whole. That is, the idea, I suppose, was that since the universe of knowledge is ultimately unified in some way, if you set free uh, academic inquirers to pursue truth uh, by their own lights, that what will end up will be an organized and unified world of knowledge. And I think the, the theory makes sense in a way, uh, but I think it increasingly has broken down as um, all these little inquirers end up coming back with conflicting reports or conflicting interpretations of how, um, how, how uh, what the knowledge means or, or how it should be used. And um, really, uh, I think we can see from our present vantage point that modern educational institutions have had no way of dealing with, with conflict. They don't know what to do with it. What they basically have done is separate people. In other words, um, if Professor A argues uh, one way and Professor B argues another, the strategy is to keep Professor A and B separate so that they can't get in each other's way. And that worked for a while, while, while there was a lot of money coming into the system you could infinitely expand the playing field and, and create a cushion for conflicts. Well, all that has ended. We don't have the luxury now to buy space for these warring professors, and we find ourselves embarrassingly um, lacking in any mechanism for negotiating conflict. Many of the books that have been written about the university in recent years have been based on the assumption that consensus is the only possible source of coherence for the university. The fact that consensus is plainly out of reach explains the often desperate tone of such books. Graf believes that conflict can also provide coherence. Learning how to address differences, he says, is the very essence of learning how to live together. My theories have as much to do with community as they do with conflict. For me, community and conflict aren't opposed. As I was saying before, uh, Alan and Bloom and I couldn't 
begin to have a conflict if we weren't part of the same academic community or part of the same discourse community or in the same conceptual ballpark. So I, uh, I think our thinking about conflict and community is often um, misguided insofar as we think of conflict as the absence of community or the enemy of community. I, I see it as a source of a new kind of academic community which we based on on debate and difference rather than consensus. How this new academic community is to be built is a problem with which Gerald Graff is currently engaged at his own university. As things now stand, students are exposed to a succession of professors, many of whom hold utterly incompatible views. The differences between them are never debated, clarified, or even mentioned. The way to deal with this, Graff thinks, is first to recognize such differences as significant and educationally fruitful for the students, and then to create forums in which they can be aired. This means modifying an academic format based completely on separate courses in such a way that conversation between courses becomes possible. Well, we're trying to develop um, the academic symposium or, or conference as an intracurricular structure. You know, uh, since I've been a professor, I, I'd um, always felt a split in my own life between my teaching life on the one hand and then my life going to conferences and symposia or giving talks at other institutions. And I've always noticed that it was, I, I always had a great time when I went to a conference and there was always a lot of lively debate and discussion and parties and so forth. And I've noticed that uh, that's, that I'm not the only one who feels that, that way that um, conference culture is, uh, is always more stimulating and enjoyable and rewarding, intellectually rewarding, than life at home. And I often wondered why couldn't we recreate some of the features of conference culture in, um, at our home campus, especially since I, not only uh, was conference culture more fun, I, I often learned more at the conferences, talking to people, you know, what's going on, who's, who's doing what, why, what, what are the trends of, of our field, and so forth. One thing we've, we've done in the Master of Arts program in the Humanities at Chicago, which I'm, I'm directing, is um, bring in the academic conference as a feature of the regular curriculum. In other words, have periodic conferences which the students, as well as the faculty, participate in on uh, central issues throughout the course of the year, and um, the program culminates with a student work-in-progress conference. The students write an MA thesis in our program. It's the culminating project that they do, and we have the students uh, present their theses, or at least some, some present, and then they give critiques of, of their uh, theses and so forth and have discussions of them. We have faculty come in and react to them. I've seen this done in freshman programs elsewhere. Uh, it can work very well. The University of North Carolina at Greensboro had a fresh, I don't know if they're still doing it, but they had a freshman program based on teaching the conflicts. The conflict, uh, the year that I uh, observed was uh, Darwin versus Genesis, you know, the evolutionary theory versus the Bible, an, an issue of great uh, interest uh, in uh, the South, in North Carolina. And this could be done um, much more frequently. I think we, we tend too readily to think of um, academic conferences and talks and events as extracurricular, as things that go on after hours. Why not build the symposium into the class 
and uh, which would be a way of uh, linking one class with other classes. I, I think that the, the secret of linking classes and creating a conversation out of classes the way I, I've been recommending is to make more use of the extracurriculum in the curriculum. Gerald Graff wants to knit the university together by creating more opportunities for interchange and more sources of common experience. He hopes in this way to add conviviality as well as coherence to the university's curriculum. His aim, at all times, is to engage the students and find ways of unlocking the pleasures and intrigues of academic life for them. Because, in the end, he says, the most important question about the culture wars is not who's winning, but whether the students are invited to play. The real problem of education, to me, is not that the forces of reason aren't winning or that the forces of a bad kind of reason are winning. The big problem of education for me is that education is largely unintelligible to 80% to 90% of the student body. That is, the culture of what people are supposed to study is not intelligible, to put it even more bluntly. The students, much of the time or most of the time, don't know what the teachers are talking about. The teachers are talking in their little uh, world of uh, intellectual coherence, which makes sense to them or to some of them. And the students are kind of pretending to understand and limping along and, you know, getting sort of good enough grades to get by. But there's a, there's a huge and depressing and, and I think increasing gap between the culture of the teachers and the culture of the students. It's getting worse as the culture of the teachers gets more complicated and more diverse. So in, in my vision of, of education, we all fight for our particular answers or, or solutions, but we do it in a way that's more intelligible than I think what, what we now succeed in doing. Ideas tonight, you've heard the 15th and final broadcast of the Education Debates by David Cayley. Tonight's program was produced by Alison Moss. The associate producers were Liz Nodge and Kathleen Pemberton. Technical direction by David Field. You can get a printed transcript of the series for $25 or a set of audio tapes for $90, and those prices include taxes and handling. Write to us at Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. And stay tuned to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news, followed by the arts today and between the covers. Mm -hmm.